The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Peter Ayer. Peter is a partner at Kroll & Mooring, LLP, the leading government contracts firm here in Washington, D.C. Peter, you like that introduction? Perfect. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, well, uh, well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, we're going to talk mergers and acquisition, the M&A market, what's going on in the government contract world and what every good government contractor needs to know about, about mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, and there's been a lot in the press recently about mergers and acquisitions uh, in this market, in particular the IT market. Um, so, Peter, just to get things started, um, how would you characterize uh, what's going on in 2018 with the M&A environment? Yeah, so far it has been off to just a really fast start. A lot of companies are uh, looking to buy. Uh, a lot of companies are looking to sell. Even for companies that aren't quite ready to go that far, there are a lot of strategic partnerships, uh, companies who are starting that discussion. All you have to do is is really read the front page of the paper every day, and you'll see something about mergers and acquisitions involving government contractors. So we're really on record pace right now. It's a really exciting time to be in this space, uh, really busy time, and there's really a lot a lot to talk about. Right. So, well, yeah, and and it is there is every day you see something in the press about you know a merger or acquisition. And, and in this town, in the you know government contract space in particular, um, so what what what's driving this this you know increased activity? There are a couple different things that are driving it. Um, we tend to put them in a few different buckets. So one is really directly responsive to the budget. Where do we see the federal government spending money? Much of it is is new uh, in terms of agencies where we're seeing big growth agencies where we're seeing some cutbacks. So that drives a couple things. You see companies who are trying to invest in those markets. You see companies trying to divest out of other markets. You see companies trying to reposition themselves uh, to meet uh, the, the budget profile. So I would put that all in kind of the, the matching the budget profile. Then you see really sort of new uh, entrance to the marketplace, companies who want to buy in to the federal government contracting space, a lot of foreign investment, uh, a lot of commercial companies who have decided that given the uptick in spend, they really want to be in this space. And then you see a lot driven by uh, the demands of the government customer. What are they buying? What are they trying to do? What are the mission capabilities they seek? So there are some companies who are trying to uh, buy into that space rather than organically create those capabilities. So those are really the the big trends that are driving the acquisitions on the divestiture side. There certainly is a focus on core activities and where you're seeing real synergies. So we're also seeing some strategic divestitures right now as well. So those are kind of the at a high level some of the big trends. But ultimately, um, companies are following the money. And right now, the budget 
is really driving a lot of that activity. So I'm going to probably ask you questions about all three of those sure. so, factors. So on the budget side, you know, with you know, with the IT Modernization Act, the new IT Modernization Fund, and just the focus on, you know, there's more talk in, in the last couple of years about, you know, sort of fixing IT, yep. you know, uh, in the federal government than I have seen in a long, long time. It's always there, right? Yes. But, but it just, as, you know, companies just trying to position themselves for the future competitions in that space? Is that- it is. It's not only trying to position themselves for those competitions, but it's also creating enough scope and scale to do it at attractive rates because there's going to be a pretty massive demand. So you see some companies, even if they already have those capabilities, wanting to add on, wanting to make sure they can handle uh, any classified pieces. Sure. There's a lot going on there to make sure you've got the right skill set to do classified. There's also a lot in terms of how we can analyze the data. So not just handle data securely, but also help the government figure out how to analyze. Um, So big data issues, Mm -hmm. a lot around artificial intelligence, um, a lot around cloud. There's just a lot where IT is driving a lot of different things. And that's true even outside of some of the more traditional domains like healthcare, yeah. we see a lot going on with IT healthcare data um, driving procurements as well. It's you know just to pick up on that a little bit. You know, one of the um, it seems to me related. It's a great point. You know, I put it in terms like economies of scale to be able to, to your point, ramp up and provide at the scale necessary to the government is a big piece of that too. I mean, you mentioned different capabilities is. Everything, you know, even more than it's ever been is sort of integrated, right? And it's, you know, it's, it, you don't, you're not buying one piece separately. You're, you're buying a solution. Is that's that a, fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you see a collapsing of products and services into end-to-end solutions and companies who want to look at their offerings and be able to position them as we can offer an end-to-end solution to meet a particular demand of the government. You also see companies who are out there trying to help the government craft the demand in a certain way um, so that they have solutions to meet those demands. So it really is a collapsing of this dichotomy between products and services and moving to solutions, and that's driving a lot of the activity. It also drives the importance of successful integration post-deal. Right. Can you, you know, we talked about integrated. So within that integrated sort of solution, and I think you might have mentioned a couple of them. We can talk a little bit more about uh, what are some of the, you know, hot sort of mission capabilities that um, that the government's interested in? Yeah, it's a great, great question. A lot of things are focused on big data, data aggregation, storage, analytics, um, taking all of that data and making it work for the government. There's a lot having to do with data, um, a lot having to do with artificial intelligence. Um, the government, uh, as as GAO has talked about in a recent report, is really thinking about, for the first time, blockchain yes, and distributed right. ledger yeah. and what role the government wants to play there, both in terms of using it as a tool, um, particularly for supply chain, um, but then also, do they want to play a role in driving procurements in that direction where that is a specific thing being sought? Or 
it's a tool that can be used to further whatever the statement of objectives is in a given procurement. So I would put those things pretty high on the list. And then um, mobile, healthcare, IT, um, those are some really hot areas too. Uh, we see a lot of uh, a lot of companies trying to make sure they have capabilities in those spaces. And then you also see, you know, just a lot in terms of classified, making sure that companies have the capability to offer a certain scale um, in the classified space. Yeah. So, and and I have a question that I've been thinking about. Well, you've been to describe the market and what's going on in the federal space. Is is this sort of mirror a little bit what's going on in just the purely sort of commercial market? I mean, it seems like you there too. You see every day whether it's people thinking about buying, you know, um, Humana or who, you know, things like that. Um, what is that? I think that's Walmart, whatever. I mean, not to use companies' names, but that's just an example. There's a lot going on. That is it. It, it seems like it is very, you know, certain like technology is driving new solution sets. Yes. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, there are certain extrinsic factors, whether it's the cost of money or tax policy, um, that drives. Um, the markets generally, absolutely. I think we're seeing in the government contract space that sort of turbocharge to some extent because the budgets are up, because government spending is up, and because right. there is some predictability to programs and contracts now that we have a better sense of budget and direction, it's really unleashed some uh, some companies that have been saving and have cash on hand to buy. Right. So we're seeing it in a much more active way um, right now. Right. When companies look at that, they look at, okay, so we have a big budget this mm-hmm. year, right, by all yep. measures. You know, they're looking out over the next few years too, right, in terms of where that budget's going to go and where investments are going to be made. And yes. I think one of the, you know, We'll touch on a little bit at the beginning of the next segment is that IT modernization p- uh, focus that the federal government has, and which you know I think we both agree is going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money, and companies that are in that space or on the periphery of that space want to be front and center because that mission and the scope there is going to drive a lot of government spending. And I think we see companies really wanting to make sure they have a seat at the table, are on the right vehicles, and understand how the government's going to buy and help shape that buying. All right. My guest today is Peter Ayer. He is a partner at Kroll & Mooring LLP. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussions, mergers, acquisition, talk a little bit more about the IT market, but also just talk about the process in general, what, what companies go through when they start thinking about you know a merger or an acquisition or a strategic divestiture as well. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Peter Ayer. He is a partner at Crow and Mooring LLP, and we're talking about mergers and acquisitions. It's a pretty hot market this year, 2018, um, and it's just, you know, the way things are going, I think it's going to continue, you know, based, Peter, particularly the factors that you laid out uh, in the first segment with regard to budget, new entrants, um, expanding capabilities, and you know, and, and understanding what the customer wants, and and the classified piece as well. I mean, it just you know, there's lots of positive factors uh, in that area. And 
you know, in the IT space in particular, you know, we were discussing that towards the end of the last segment. You know, what are some of the key things that, you know, IT companies, you know, have to think about when they're thinking about this, you know, merger or acquisition process? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, there is a, there's a set of issues, diligence issues that you look at regardless. But for the IT companies in particular, I would mention uh, two or three issues that are really top of mind, both for buyers and sellers and for their outside advisors. Um, there is such a focus right now on cybersecurity and the connection of the IT offering to cyber that companies who really are playing in this space are very mindful of how their offering helps the government comply with the cyber requirements that are being pushed out in an, at an agency level, whether it's FISMA or safeguarding. The, the companies who are selling into that space really understand how to help the government comply. So that's a big part of diligence because if the solutions don't meet the federal government requirements, it's very hard to scope and scale in a way that a buyer would probably want. So that's both sort of a, a buy side and a sell side point. The other is thinking about supply chain. You know, the, the IT solutions oftentimes have a hardware software component. Thinking through where the components are procured, thinking through the various issues um, where, where parts are coming from, Trade Agreements Act, Buy America Act, and frankly, just understanding the government's view of the international landscape and the importance of a secure supply chain. Um, so that also is a diligence point, but it's also a, a business piece that there are some uh, types of components, some jurisdictions where the buyer may be more nervous than others. Um, so that's a really important part of the IT offering, and, and it's something that factors into business and diligence. Related to that, I, you know, when you describe that's a great point, a great point. Um, both those points on cyber and supply chain for IT. Um, in the in that context, you know, as companies are lo looking at the landscape, you know, I know there's talk that you could have you know, more cyber requirements given what's happened and you know yeah. in that space as well. And in some relationships, some sort of domestic, you know, sort of preferences based on cyber or supply chain risk. Is that something companies will should be tracking? There are certain agencies that are more sensitive to it than others and certain missions that, that are more sensitive to it than others. So if it really depends on what the business case looks like. Um, so if the business case of a potential target involves selling into an agency and that agency is particularly sensitive to information being stored outside the U.S., that's something to pay really close attention to. Even if it's legally compliant, it may be disfavored by certain agencies. So that's a big, big issue. The other piece of it has to do with um, not only where the solution is going to be provided, um, but who's going to be providing it. Is it going to be within the U.S.? Is it offshored? Thinking that through is really important as well. Uh, to to looking at what what it's going to uh, mean for the business case, right? And I just you know my sense is that in this current environment, you know there be there's going to be more emphasis on that yes. than in, in the past. Yeah, and and it's 
it's both an opportunity point. Um, can you sell that solution into the government? But it's also a compliance and a cost issue. So an example from a recent transaction that we worked on is a company um, had great offerings, great demand from their customers, but they weren't yet in compliance with all of the new cybersecurity requirements. Mm -hmm. So one of the big things to look at when you're thinking about a transaction is how much am I going to have to spend as the buyer to make sure that the target is up to speed in terms of the cybersecurity requirements. Some of those have real out-of-pocket costs that you need to build into the business case. So within this arc of new requirements, how's a company doing? Are they right. already getting an A+, plus, uh, yeah. or are they somewhat below that? Because not only is it a compliance issue, it really does have some some true cost implications as well. And for the flip side, for a new new entrance to the market, they could be looking for capabilities where people have that infrastructure already in place. Is that yeah? Fair? That's exactly right. I yeah. mean, one of the things that we will sometimes see is a pure commercial company buying a government contractor that has excellent infrastructure and they have compliant offerings. They have all the back office systems that are needed to be a contractor, and then running certain of their offerings through that um, that new subsidiary um, because it's such an important part of being a successful contractor. Right. So, okay, so that's great on the IT. Let's just take a big step sure. back, a little step back, I guess, and just talk generally about what does a typical process look like uh, with regard to M&A and a government contractor? So the, the process for government deals, government contracts deals and commercial deals is not so different um, but there are a couple of important nuances. So um, typically, there is a general business understanding of you know why a company might want to buy and why a company might want to sell. There is typically that sort of meeting of the minds, right? Right. And then the yeah. process begins. Um, there is a dance in terms of information being shared, buyer requesting information, seller sharing information, then you generally move into further diligence and then work out some sort of transaction document, whether it's a purchase of stock or an asset deal. The thing that's there are really three or four things that make the government contracts process different and unique. One is regulatory approvals. So between signing and closing, who needs to approve it on the government side? Um, if there is foreign ownership, you have to think about CFIUS. Um, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. That process right now is taking a little bit longer than usual. Um, so if there is... Is that because they're taking a closer look at things or it's what? It's both. It's, yeah. a, it's a bandwidth issue. Yeah. Um, but it's also, um, from a policy standpoint, um, there are certain areas of scrutiny now that haven't always been the case. So buyers and sellers need to be very mindful of that when they're thinking about the timeline. So there's a CFIUS piece. In asset transactions where contracts are moving from company A to company B, or even company A moving from one corporate form to another, so an ink to an LLC, an LLC to an ink, um, there are typically government approvals that are needed. That you need to bake in as well. If you have, have export control issues, you may need approval from Department of State so the regulatory approvals are really important. That's an addition 
to all of the typical approvals like Hartscott, antitrust, things like that. So there are some very special hurdles that you often have to jump through. Um, one that's often overlooked are approved suppliers. If the government has approved particular suppliers or given you an ATO on a system, what does a change of control mean for that, especially if there's foreign ownership? So regulatory approvals. Another big one is organizational conflicts of interest. So one thing to be mindful of, and this is very different from commercial deals. And you know what, Peter, we're up on the break. You know, that's a great place to, to stop. And we can talk about organizational conflicts of interest, you know, when we come back at the beginning and in the next segment. My guest today is Peter Ayer. He is a partner at Kroll & Mooring LLP here in Washington, D.C. And we're talking about mergers and acquisitions in 2018, uh, the government market and what's going on there. And when we come back, we'll continue our discussion and talk about organizational conflicts of interest. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Peter Ayer. He is a partner at Kroll and Warning LLP here in Washington, D.C., and we're talking about mergers and acquisitions 2018. And uh, Peter, when uh, we took the break, you just brought up one of my favorite topics, organizational conflicts of interest, and um, which is a... Uh, <laughs> Uh, um, a mysterious sort of topic in the federal government anyway, the way that yeah, government looks at it in some sometimes anyway. Um, so what are the issues and concerns that you had started to talk about a little bit in the, in the OCI area? Sure. So let me just offer kind of a, the, the overview of what an OCI is, and then we'll talk be about great. how yeah. it pops up, right? So it, it, there are three basic types of conflicts. Um, and the first is bias ground rules. So the notion is that if a company writes the specification or contributes, it can't also bid. That's type one. Type two is unequal access to information. So if a company has access to government information that gives it a leg up, it can't then seek uh, to, to bid on that because the information may help. And then third is impaired objectivity. The classic example is sort of grading your own work. You're both providing a system and evaluating it. So that's the basic framework. We've got these three types of OCIs. So in the deal context, there are really two big considerations. One is that a buyer can be focused, focused, focused on the target and what its contracts portfolio looks like. In order to assess conflicts correctly, you not only have to look at the target, but you also have to look at your own contracts your yeah. own pipeline, because there is an attribution of each other's contracts to each other from an OCI standpoint. In other words, as soon as a buyer and seller um, do their deal, all of the contracts are imputed to one another. So that you know, if you have one contract as the buyer doing testing and evaluation, and your target is providing the system, that is a potential conflict. So. Things can be either synergistic, and that's the upside, right. but but if things are too close and the relationships are of a certain type, it can actually cause real issues um, to that integration and to that business plan. Yeah, and that example, that's a great example you gave, or you're buying company X and they're doing testing and evaluation on something you're building. Um, what happens in those cases typically? Is there, I mean, how do you mitigate that or do you, or mm -hmm. some cases you probably have 
uh, divest of the contract, perhaps? I don't know. So, so the first question is um, identifying it to make right. sure you have correctly identified. Then there is often a disclosure question. Um, certain, certain conflicts can be effectively mitigated through firewalls. Others can be waived by the government. Yeah. And some, there really is no effective way to mitigate. You can only avoid. What that means in reality is divestiture, using a small business or a, a firewalled subcontractor for that portion of the work. So there are a couple different ways to deal with it. The key is to recognize, disclose, and, and address. Right. The other nuance that I just want to mention is when is the conflict realized in essence? So a lot of people will tell you that the conflict isn't um, ripe, if you will, until close, until you're one company. There is some case law out there, and some government officials take the view that once it looks really certain that the deal is going to happen, even before you have formally signed, you may have a conflict. So that's a place that you have to be really careful. Once the government thinks that the incentives are such that one company may take a more favorable view of the target, even if closing hasn't actually happened, you've at least got to carefully consider whether that conflict is of a type in nature that needs to be addressed even before close. Now, the other trick to that is making sure that you are within bounds of what the antitrust law says because you're not one company yet. So that is an issue that has to be very carefully navigated and is pretty unique to the government contracts world. Yeah. Um, yeah, challenging stuff. That's where, like, communication amongst all the parties, including the government, Correct. is uh, absolutely vital. Yes. Um, so that, that's a, you know, just, and then I just want to then pull back a little bit. We focused on OCIs there um, and then cyber in the last segment as well. What are some of the key sort of in the context of best practices, examination of uh, due diligence that, um, you know, you'd like to talk about? So I put it into to two different categories. Um, one is um, make sure you understand the business objectives because the diligence will vary depending on the business objectives. More on that in a minute. The second is prepare for a broken deal. Um, assume that buyer and seller will, will start talking and the deal won't happen. Because one thing that, that um, outside advisors need to do is to make sure that if this deal doesn't happen, both properties, both companies can still march forward um, in a way that is successful. There are a lot of deals in this town where diligence starts and the deal never happens. So part of the challenge is to make sure that companies are doing things in a way to protect their long-term interests, even if the deal doesn't happen. So let me talk a little bit about each of those. So understanding the business objective because it drives diligence, let me give you a couple of examples. One is you're buying a company because you really like their intellectual property. They have some really cool thing. Well, from a diligence standpoint, the question is, what do they really own? What rights have they already given to the government? Because if they have um, purposefully or inadvertently given unlimited rights to the government, to their secret sauce, their tech data, their IP, the company may not be worth very much. So if you're buying a company because of intellectual property, the key thing to diligence is what rights have been given. If they've been doing all that design and development with government money, the chances that you are getting the value that you want and think 
you at least have to really carefully analyze that hypothesis. So that's sort of business case one, buying the IP. Two is buying the company because they've got great contracts. Well, that may be true, but you got to look at those contracts. Is it a small business that post-transaction will be large? Can they continue using those vehicles? Or like certain vehicles, you go into dormant status and you can't bid for new work. Well, that impacts the pipeline in a very real way. Um, another great example would be if you already have that same vehicle and you're trying <laughs> to merge the two, right. the government's not going to let that that stand in most cases. So that's another good example is sort of the, the contract vehicles. Um, what does it really look like, especially if it's a small business? Um, now, the flip side, of course, if you're a small business, is trying to make those assets as valuable as possible. Um, but that involves careful consideration of those contracts. The third is really a, a personnel play. So the target has really smart people, oftentimes with a particular skill set, particular clearances. Well, in that case, if you really don't care as the buyer about their contracts, about their IP, that also drives diligence. Why, why go spend a lot of money looking at the contract vehicles and the intellectual property if what you really want are people that can come on and support your existing needs? That drives diligence too. So it's a streamlining point. Um, it's an effectiveness point. But it's also doing the diligence in a way that helps the client make sure their business objectives are being met. So those are sort of three classic examples. Right. I wanted to ask you about just because it's the, you know, <laughs> I used to get asked all the time about just about when you're talking about the process, right? The FAR process, novations. Um, you have any thought, any tips or best practices in dealing? I mean, the novations sort of encapsulate, and that's how the government recognizes the successor mm -hmm. and interest to the contract. Um, you know, the, any any good stories about those or? So I think the, yeah, it's a, it's a common question, a really hot topic. I think the first question is to think about, can you structure the deal in a way that novation won't be required? So novations yeah. are only required um, if the legal holder of the contract changes. If company X is bought, it's a st stock deal, most of the time company X still continues to exist as a subsidiary or a sister entity. In that case, novations typically aren't required if the legal entity stays the same. Now. If company X goes from an LLC to an Inc., maybe because the legal entity has changed, or if company X is merged up into uh, the buyer, then oftentimes innovation is going to be needed. Um, the best possible thing is to communicate with the government, make sure they understand what's happening, understand the standard for innovation. It's really, is it in the government's best interest? and be responsive to exactly what the FAR requires and recognize that it may take a very long time um, <laughs> yeah. and that not, not every agency is the same. So you absolutely have to have a plan B and a plan C. Um, and oftentimes that means having a subcontract in place. And a big pitfall to avoid is if you're using a subcontract mechanism to kind of bridge that gap between submission of novation and when the novation is actually approved. If you're using a subcontract between the parties, just make sure you're aware that the government uh, may need to approve that subcontract. Right. A lot of contracts have consent 
Yes. To sub provision. Yeah. So just make sure you've got that in place. Right. It's great advice, Peter. And Peter, we're up on the break. So um, one, my guest today is Peter Ayer. He's a partner at Kroll and Mooring LLP. And we're talking mergers and acquisitions. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about some of the best practices, legal issues, and just maybe a little bit more about that the role of communication in this process, particularly when you're thinking about it from a, the government's perspective. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Peter Ayer. He's a partner at Kroll & Mooring LLP, and we're talking mergers and acquisitions. And we've been talking best practices, Peter, in the last segment, and I wanted to talk a little bit more you know, just about the communication aspect of it. Um, just what are some of the tips or keys to, you know, that communication piece, um, especially when you're dealing with the government <laughs> and the third party there? Yep. So, um, look, I mean, the, the whole notion of making these deals work and being successful long term is thinking about the key places where you need to communicate clearly with the government. Um that there are the required pieces, obviously, whether it's novation or things of that sort, especially if there is uh, security clearances involved. But then there's also just the sort of practical business side of it, which is if there's a new owner coming in, it is oftentimes really prudent for buyer and seller after the deal is done or very close to done to go in and visit the government customer, to make the customer feel like this is a great thing for them to talk about services and solutions and um, what's valuable for the government in this transaction. So there's the customer service piece of this that is so key to making these deals effective. Um, and I think that's a really big part of, of what um, buyers and sellers are thinking about, um, particularly if there are classified issues. So in diligence, one thing that is uh, important to talk about up front is whether um, the buyer will need access to anything classified in order to conduct diligence because almost always the government is going to have to be involved um, depending on the nature of the classification. But that's a really important thing to message carefully. Um, It's also a really important thing to plan in advance because that sort of access uh, can't happen overnight, right? right? If it's an ordinary commercial contract, typically that can be posted very quickly. Um, but sometimes uh, documents that involve government information need customer approval before they can be provided, even if they're unclassified. So thinking through those issues is important. Good um, I, I'd also uh, mentioned sort of the other kind of best practices, just one I want to touch on really quickly, is the planning for a broken deal. So you know, it is not unusual that um, companies that know each other very well may be talking about doing a deal. So uh, company X and company Y work together a lot as prime sub, subprime. They're talking about doing a deal. Everyone thinks the deal is going to happen. Um, well, you know, if you start getting access to really sensitive information about rates and profit margins and performance issues and executive compensation and the deal doesn't happen, that dynamic in terms of the going, trying to go back and rewind the clock to right. when we were quote unquote just prime and sub is very different once the, you know each other's 
rates and margins uh, and right. kind of where this fits in the overall priority. So you just have to think very carefully about sequencing of information. Sometimes it's not unusual where when we're representing sellers um, that we will work on uh, kind of putting together a phase one of a diligence uh, and a data room so that the information is not super sensitive. So that's a really important thing that's as a, well. Yeah, that's another great point. So what are the keys to successful deal? And there can be the legal issues, there can be the business, you know, business keys. Can yep. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think that you've accurately spotted that there are legal considerations, business considerations. Um, I think there are synergies in the business case that are sometimes hard to realize. So cost synergies are typically easier, right? That's making sure functions are consolidated and streamlined. Um, that typically is easier than some of the revenue synergies. I would say key to both of those is the cultural synergy. Um, do the companies fit together culturally? Um, it is not at all unusual that you can have terrific legal diligence, you can have great business diligence, but ultimately the cultures don't work in terms of compatibility. So you think about things like how you go to market. Um, how do you how do you interface with customers? Um, do you take a view that is just inconsistent with the other company? So those cultural issues are really important to understand, in addition to legal and business, certainly. Um, one thing I would say on the business synergy is really thinking carefully about pipeline of the buyer and the seller. Are you? I mean, it's not that unusual that you'll have a buyer and a seller who are actually chasing the same, same opportunity. Yes. Yeah. And, and they don't find <laughs> out about it until pretty late in the game. And then ultimately, you know, the business case has built in that both companies are going to secure it. Your probability of win is, is 75% for both. But, you know, ultimately, you can't both win that award. That's right. <laughs> um, so understanding not only the true conflicts, but where you may have overlapping pursuits is really, really important. Um, another important one is rate sustainability. If you've got uh, cost reimbursement work, understanding that, um, let's take a CAS or a, a small business that has never had to deal with the cost accounting standards. They're small, they're exempt. Well, all of a sudden, they're going to be subject to CAS if they become large and they've got contracts that have those clauses. What does it look like for their rates? Do those contracts remain profitable? So understanding from a diligence standpoint, not only the snapshot in time, but fast forward a year. How will the rates look? Um, what will it mean to be cash compliant in terms of their business? All right. Yeah, all good stuff. And you know, we now we have about a minute left or so. And I wanna, you know, what are the implications do you see for the government customer here with all this activity going on, you know, and, and people trying to positioning for the, you know, for you know, the factors you described in the first segment, budget, where that's going, you know, new entrance to the market, you know, integrated capabilities, you know, in the secure work. All those factors, what are the implications, the flip side, what are the implications for the government customer when they're looking out at, across the landscape? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, ultimately, I, I think that everyone benefits from clear communication, from the government talking about what its needs are going to be, where it is going to be spending money, and frankly, where it is looking for support in new areas. Um, there is such a thirst to play in the space that clear communication from the government and active engagement from industry 
is going to better shape and refine the M&A space. So I, I do think that that communication is going to be key. And ultimately, the more information the government can share about where things are headed in terms of procurements and spend and needs and where it needs industry to help, I think that's going to help um, both refine those deals, uh, but also really be a value for the government as well to get better solutions at a better price. I didn't get to ask you this earlier, but in the area of like shared services, managed services, is something the government's talking about a lot. Is that that could have an impact on the market as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever the government is looking at buying in a new way, um, that not only impacts the M and A space, but also how you may put together strategic partnerships um, who have different approaches to test that market before you go all in on. Uh, buying or selling. We're seeing a lot more joint ventures. We're seeing a lot more strategic partnerships to try to meet those needs and figure out how to serve the government. Right. Peter, great stuff. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Peter Ayer. He's a partner at Kroll and Mooring LLP. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.